We are here to celebrate the reality of the resurrection. I'm so thankful that you've chosen to spend your morning with us to bring the church into a YMCA gymnasium. And my name is Jamie, and it's my great privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. On Friday night, we gathered to remember and to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus. So on Friday, there was a bloody Roman cross, and today we get to celebrate the reality that the tomb is empty and that new life is birthed forth in the midst of this world, and that there's this overlap that's taking place now between heaven and earth. And one day, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set everything right. And we get to celebrate that reality together this morning. And so, so grateful again that you've chosen to be here this morning with us. And I absolutely love Easter. All right. I I like Christmas. All right. It's good. It's a good thing as well. But Easter, man, it's just get excited about Easter and just love the opportunity to reflect on the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus. Because without the resurrection, like we are people to be pitied, that we actually would have no hope. We're just fools is what the apostle Paul tells us. But the reality of the resurrection, it changes everything. And so this week, in my enthusiasm and my excitement, I, I got an email. I imagine you guys have these, these moments, right? You're on countless email lists. You don't know how you got on that particular list, all right? Um, and yet, these things keep coming at you. And there was this headline I saw on my, my phone. It kind of showed up there, and it said, the, the subject line is, like, what successful people think about Easter? And I thought, oh, cool. Well, I'm, I'm successful, right, is what they are telling me. All right, that was nice of them to, to say that. Um, and then I thought, you know what? I recognized who the company was, uh, was. I'm like, I didn't know that they were, a, maybe, maybe they were a Christian company. I didn't know. It was this email list that I'm on for, they put out a series of kind of like productivity um, helps, like to-do lists and notebooks and journals and just kind of things that kind of help with overall productivity. And so I clicked on that. I was like, oh, I wonder what they have to say. What do successful people think about Easter? And here uh, is what they said. They said, for most people, Easter is just another chance to load up on candy and take a few days off. But for people with big goals, Easter means the start of Q2, all right? And I was like, wait, what? Like, we've now deemed Easter just in calendar sort of goals? Like, all right, we're into the second quarter. Like, we got to get productive. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I think we've missed that. And then literally yesterday, I got the follow-up email from them, and they said, Easter is here. This means warmer weather, brighter days, and new blooming. But that also means a quarter of the year is already gone, all right? And like, they're trying to get this panic apparently in us, right? I'm like, whoa, 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 like we miss it. And I can look at that, kind of poke fun at that, but the reality is, man, we can just kind of blitz through this. We get going and it's like, whoa, let's stop. It's a really unfortunate thing that even in the church calendar, we kind of have this buildup. We have these 40 days of Lent and all that, and we have this one Sunday to celebrate the reality of the resurrection, but every single day we are resurrection people, amen? That's what we get to celebrate. So this morning, I want to look at John chapter 20, this resurrection account, the various gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the the story, and this is John's account. So I would encourage you to do this. Turn, if you brought a Bible, turn to John chapter 20. If you did not bring a Bible, there's a couple back tables there. There's paperback Bibles there. You can get up and grab one of those. You can turn to page 1004 is where you'll find this text. If you don't own a Bible or you got one that's kind of in some translations difficult to make sense of, we would encourage you just please take one of those home with you as a gift. We'd love to, yeah, it'll, ser- it'll definitely serve you. The other option that you have is if you've got your phone here with you, you can go to cpwp.life. And the second card as you swipe over will say message notes. And what is up on the screen this morning is also listed there, including the text that we'll be in. Any quotes, questions, things, or space for you to actually take notes, email them to yourself afterwards. But I want to go ahead and read this Easter account, this Easter morning account out of John chapter 20. And then I want to talk about the things that we can learn from this 
how this informs us, not just the what that has taken place, but like why it actually matters to you and to me. So would you do this? Would you stand as I read God's word this morning? John chapter 20, we're going to look at the first 18 verses. It says this, now on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's referring to John here, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11, it tells us this, though. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Well, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So for a few minutes this morning, I want to explore this question. What is it that we can actually learn from this text? What does Easter actually teach us? I'm imagining that for some of you here this morning, this story or various accounts of it are quite familiar. For some of you, maybe you haven't heard these accounts in a long, long time. Maybe you grew up in the church. Uh, You went, you were maybe forced to go as a young kid, but when you had the ability to make your own decisions, you're like, I'm out. All right, I don't know how you got here, but I do know this. That we worship a God who is appointed at the very time and places in which we would live. It means that God actually has you here this morning. I firmly believe that. All right, if you're wondering if God's at work in your life, one of the ways you can look is to say, well, you're here this morning. However you got here, all right, whether you're kicking and screaming or you're excited to be here or somewhere in between, like the Lord has you and I here together in this particular place to hear this particular text, to talk about the resurrection, so what is it that we can actually learn from Easter? Not just the what, as important as that is, but why does it matter for your life and my life? I got four things I want to run through, all right, th- this morning. The first thing that we see is that Easter, as we look back over these verses, all right, Easter confronts the darkness, the pain, the difficulty of this life. It confronts death itself. I mean, the way that this passage started out, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, and it even tells us the scene is set while it was still dark. 
So on Friday he died, on Saturday it was a holy day, they couldn't do any work, and so Mary and the other accounts in the Gospels tell us that there were some other women that were with her, and they went to bring spices to prepare the body. They couldn't have done that on Saturday, so they come on Sunday, which is the first day of the week, it's the, day, it's the reason now we celebrate why we have church on Sunday, when that shifted because of the reality of the resurrection, but it is dark. But it's not just physically dark, I mean think about this woman Mary. Think about the followers of Jesus. We're going to look at her life more in just a moment. But they had such hopes and expectations and dreams, and they were seeing Jesus over a three-year period of time out ministering. Crowds gathered to him. He couldn't even get a a moment by himself. People bringing the sick, people bringing demon-possessed people, uh, friends lowering their buddies down through the roof so that he might actually, you know, make it through a crowd to heal them. All kinds of miraculous things taking place. Even one of Jesus' good friends named Lazarus had been raised from the dead. If all these things that have taken place and everything was pointing to the reality that this is the long-awaited one. So if you put yourself into the story, all right, you think about the hopes and dreams and expectations that you have. Just imagine that ramped up like a thousand times. Like whatever it is you hope is going to happen. These people, they were like, this is it. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And then he died. That he'd been ushered in the week before saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Like here comes the king, this triumphal entry. And then a few short days later, he is beaten, he is scourged. The flesh of his back is ripped off. A beam is put upon his shoulders as he's meant to carry it outside of the city up a hill. And there these spikes were driven into his hands, into his feet. As the Roman soldiers mocked him, as the Jewish leaders mocked him, as the thieves on either side of him mocked him. He was put up there on a cross. Devastating. There's almost no way to to talk about it. Words fail me in this moment to describe the amount of disappointment that they must have felt. And so she goes there with a heavy heart. She goes there more dejected, more disappointed, more grieving than she's ever experienced in her entire life. And the reality of Easter is it does something. It confronts darkness. It confronts death. In fact, what it does is it invites us to consider this. What will you do with the grief that you face? The grief you're currently facing, the grief you will face in the future. What about the fear, the anxiety, the things that weigh heavy on your heart? Like, what are you going to do with that? What about the ultimate anxiety that exists as people consider death? At some point along the way, all right, we contemplate the reality that the story is going to end in death. Like we will take our last breath at some point. So how do we deal with that? And in the world of pop psychology, I was reading a few articles this week. One I came across was a Time Magazine article written about a little over a year ago. And in it, they were referencing this. I'll put a couple of the words up on the screen. They said, well, here's how you deal with it. It says, people are able to come to terms with death as they age thanks to what psychologists have, have dubbed terror management theory. Just nice little easy reading before you go to bed. Terror management theory, okay? And it says this, it's equal parts denial, self-soothing, courage, and fatalism. It's an interesting little cocktail to stir up there, isn't it? Think about four parts, denial, self-soothing, courage, and fatalism. Hmm, let's drink deeply from that cup. Is that the best that there actually is? And the message of Easter, the message of the empty tomb, the message of the resurrection is that death doesn't have the final say. I woke up this morning, maybe many of you guys did, to this news that there were bombings taking place as people gathered 
in Sri Lanka this, in the early hours of the morning, for early hours for us, what was there Easter Sunday morning. If you haven't read this, go and read it this, this afternoon and pray and grieve and weep, but don't weep as those without hope but yet grieve the pain and the reality of this world that there were men, women, and children who gathered to worship the risen Lord Jesus and strategic bombs were placed outside of these churches at the point when I read this morning, about 150 people were confirmed dead, some 500 people injured, churches blown up. I mean, just this horrific scene. And we come back to this and to go to people that have dealt with loss, to go to Mary this morning and say, well, we've got something for you. It's called terror management theory. You just need to focus on these things or just find somebody to talk to. Like, can we admit at least that doesn't hold up, does it? It's like, that's not going to help us. What we need is an empty tomb. What we need is death to be defeated so that that fear could go away so that those that even die in tragic situations might know that there's actually a hope. This is where the book of Revelation tells us in Revelation 21, this is where the story is heading. So Easter confronts death and darkness, all right? It's about crushing Satan's head and dealing with the, the evil of this world that Jesus is gonna come back. And so he tells us this, here's the promise. I don't know if you believe this or not, but here's what I put before you. You should want this to be true. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This closeness, this intimacy, he will wipe away. Think about that image there. Every tear from their eyes. Not that there's not just gonna be any more tears, but like he will be so close to you, he will wipe away your tears. He cares so deeply about you and your story. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We're now into this new reality that's been ushered in by the reality of the resurrection. So Easter, for one, I just wanna encourage you, you've got pain, you've got doubts, you've got just all these things that weigh heavy, even contemplating the reality of death. You can take that sort of like, well, just self-soothing and denial and kind of go that route, but one day you and I will be confronted with it, whether to us personally or the people that we love and that we care about. And I wanna encourage you, come back to the reality of the empty tomb that Satan, sin, and death have been defeated, and that Jesus is going to set everything right. So not only does Easter confront the darkness and death, I also wanna encourage you in this, that Easter is an opportunity to, it welcomes in questions, it invites questions. And so my guess is anytime, you know, there's just a group of people gathered in a room, there would be all, if we could just stop and just say, hey, what questions do you have? If you could be honest, and even if you walked in here this morning as somebody that's like, hey, like, I'm actually, maybe you're a leader in the church, or you help lead a, a Bible study, and you're like, I don't know, if, can I share that I have any doubts or, or questions? Like, the reality is you should be sharing those things. That Easter actually invites this sort of reflection, contemplation. I love the way Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says it. He says that a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Now, I'm not here this morning to try and create more doubt for you, I think we just need to recognize we have doubts. I've got doubts. You've got doubts. 
And those things are actually welcomed by Easter Sunday. Look with me at these verses that we see here and, and Peter's interaction as he comes to the tomb. It tells us this, all right, that they get, to the, they get to the tomb, all right, and it tells us that Simon Peter, verse 6, came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths. Now what's fascinating is just prior to that, it tells us that John also saw. But it's a different word that's used here when John goes in and sees. It's more of like, oh yeah, I see it. It's kind of this observation. The word here that talks about Peter seeing is, a, is this Greek word from which we get the word theorize. So what's happening here is Peter is trying to make sense. He's like, wait, wait, wait. I, I know he died on Friday. He went into the tomb. And now I'm looking in and there's these claws that are laying there where his body was. And then there's this one that's folded up that would have covered his face and it's there. And it's like the wheels are turning and he's just like, what in the world is happening? When he saw, it's not just this quick observation, it's him pondering, considering, theorizing, trying to connect the dots, wondering, wait, how in the world is this possible? Because even for the Jewish people, some of you might be like, well, yeah, they, they sort of expected this. They expected a resurrection at the end of the age, but not this. And so I want to ask you, like, are you seeing are you taking the time to consider? Even if you're somebody that's been in church your entire life, like, will you look and will you see and help even ask the questions of the text so that it might actually build some confidence? Maybe you're here this morning, you're completely skeptical. You're like, I don't even know why, why I'm here, all right? Like, I was hoping I could work out, that wasn't happening, right? Like, I don't know what got you here, but the reality is this, that you should consider this. I mean, because we do give time and energy to lots of different things that we consider and we contemplate, right? Like, you might be very dialed into your sports team and the statistics or your fantasy football. None of that's bad, right? But, like, we see lots of things. We contemplate. We want to stop and we want to figure it out, right? I'm a bit obsessive-compulsive with this sort of stuff. Like, I can't watch a TV show. If something gets out of order, I'm like, no, 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 no. We have to do this. The kids went ahead on this show. Like, we got to go back, all right? My wife would tell you that to, you know, just great frustration, we used to watch reruns of the show Friends, and I would literally have to hit pause on the DVR and be like, okay, are Ross and Rachel together at this point? Like, I can't figure this out. I need to know where we are in the sequence. And that's just a silly example. The reality is like, I want to figure this out. Now, if I care to figure that out, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it behoove us to figure this thing out? Because at some point, you got to explain Christianity. Like, how in the world are we here a couple thousand years later? And there's good questions to ask, but how do you even explain this? How do you explain people that gave their lives for if it was the lie? How do you explain these things? And so what do you see? So let me just point out a couple of things, all right? And because alliteration's fun, let me talk about linens, legends, and ladies for a moment, all right? So <laughs> did you notice, Peter, what does he look at at first? He's like, these linen claws. Now, what had to be running through his mind, which probably would have been running through your mind, is if somebody came and stole the body, because that's a story that was propagated, like, oh, somebody came and did this. That's the explanation for the empty tomb. If you were busting in in the middle of the night to get this body out of there, would you take the time to unwrap all of the cloths? And there was a lot, for one. And then unwrap the part that was over Jesus' face and gently sort of fold it up and set it there and even make it look like the body, you know, like a kid trying to hide under their bed with pillow, or like make it look like somebody's there. Like, like why, would you, why would you do that? You would be in a rush. There'd be this flurry of activity. You'd be like, I'll deal with that later. 
But apparently this scene is like the body just poof, was gone, and down fell the linen cloth. So Peter's trying to figure that out. How would we explain that? That doesn't make any sense unless it actually just happened that way. And some will even look at stories like this and say, well, this is just legend. But I want to tell you, that's not how legend go. Like if, if you were seeking to push forward this story, like the detail that's in there. This is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. You want to know why? Because there are things in here that seemingly don't have anything really to do with the story. But did you notice this? And these wouldn't be in here if it was legend. You wouldn't take the time to record this unless it actually happened. Let me give you an example. All right. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. So the gun goes off. They're both running. All right. They're keeping pace with one another. It's Peter and John. All right. But the other disciple, that's John, who's writing the story, okay, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Peter's not in good shape. Peter's huffing and puffing, right? John's there first. Like, okay, you had to include that detail. The empty tomb is what matters, but he won the race. All right. They're going toward the tomb, all right? Stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Verse six, then Simon Peter came. He wants you to know. He was lagging way behind, all right? Following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in its place. When the other disciple, verse 8, John referring to himself again, who had reached the tomb first, all right? Like, all right, John, we get it. Just drop it. You won. You're in better shape. You can put the bumper sticker on your car about how far you run, all right? You can do that. Great. Why would that be in there? If it, it's just this historical truths that are being recorded. It doesn't push the story along. If, the, if you know, Peter had outran John, tomb's still empty, but there's these details here, the names that are given, the specific names that are given, that people could go and actually, this is what the apostle uh, Paul would talk about in 1 Corinthians 15, you doubt, go, go talk to the hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus. Go and do this. And then one of the biggest assurances that we get that the tomb was empty is that the first witnesses to it, both here in the account of John, and as you go and like read Luke, there's a group of women, because you notice Mary says, we, all right? The first People to see the empty tomb are the ladies, the women, the ones who were not well regarded or well respected culturally in that time. The ones who, if they ever witnessed a crime or something happening, their word, their witness could not be used in a court of law. It was discarded. They were regarded in that time and place as hysterical. That's how women were viewed. And so if you're going to make up a story, why in the world would you have the women being the first witnesses? Unless, of course, that's just the way it played out. And God showing how he loves to flip things upside down. And God's way of working is not the way that we would work. And so the ladies show up. And who is it that is the apostle to the apostles? It's Mary. Like she gets to go and tell, guys, the tomb is empty. She's the one, like the apostles, who had heard that there was going to be resurrection. I'm not saying she showed up with that in mind. She had the spices there. But she shows up. The disciples, they're, they're nowhere to be found. And who's the one now heralding the good news? It's the women. All of these things point to the fact that this is how it played out. And so Easter, it invites your question. Now listen, I don't assume that just in that moment. You're like, okay, cool. Where do I sign up? Like, I don't have any more questions. But it would serve you well to not ignore your questions. Don't ignore your doubts. Plug in. If you're like, well, yeah, I come to church on Easter. Okay, so glad that you're here. But guess what? We meet here in the same time in the same place next week. 
and you figuring those things out, it's going to take multiple visits, connecting in community, having a group of people to wrestle with. And what you will find is people here that will not be perfect, all right? But will say, yeah, I, I've doubted. I've got my own questions. Here's what helped me. And we're going to figure this out together. It is a rational faith that we believe, but there's still a faith element for sure. What do you see? And I want to encourage you in this as well, though, the Easter story. So not only does it confront darkness, not only does it invite questions, it's a story of extending grace. Look with me at verses 14 to 18 again. It says, having said this, you know, Mary's been weeping. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her in that moment, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Here's what I want you to see. Maybe you're aware of this, maybe you're not. Maybe you could use a refresher. But we read this account. Okay, Mary Magdalene. Maybe you're like, oh, I think I've heard of her. Don't people say different stories about her? Here's, here's the true story about Mary Magdalene. It's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus is doing his ministry. There's this groups of people that are beginning to follow him, including a group of women. And Mary is one of these that begins to be a follower of Jesus but Mary didn't just show up on the scene as this one that was really put together, had her life all in order. It's just like, no, I'm a, I'm a really good person. And sure, like, I could add a little bit of Jesus to my life. Her life was an absolute train wreck. Because here's what it tells us in Luke 8. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. A lot of commentators even think in the scriptures we were told of one time Jesus encounters a man, all right, who's filled in it's with legions of demons. They're just, he's just filled with them. And it tells him that he would cry out and he would tear his clothes off and he would foam at the mouth and he would cut himself. And it was just this grotesque sort of scene. And to be filled and even this number seven, it's signifying like she is filled with demons. She was out of her mind. Like you might meet somebody and be like, oh, they're kind of crazy. No, like Mary was full on crazy verifiably crazy, insane, had completely lost touch with reality. Demons had taken over her, and guess what happened? Jesus had healed her. That's her story. It's a story of grace, and now she shows up, having been a follower of Jesus, and did you notice? She, at first, she doesn't recognize Jesus, and then she recognizes him. How? Is it because she figured it out? Is it was like she was smart enough to connect the dots and look, oh, that's not a gardener. I think that's Jesus. Yeah, he said she doesn't do that. She would have been headed in a trajectory of missing it had Jesus not said to her one word, Mary. He called her by name. And in that moment, through the tears, through the grief, through the weeping, she saw clearly the most clearly she'd ever seen in her life, she saw the risen Lord Jesus. It's a story, not just when the demons went away, but again and again and again that Jesus calls, that Jesus pursues. You're not here as a Christian because you figured it out and you dialed in and you got the questions answered and you researched and you did all of that. It's because Jesus called you by name. And when you heard that name, you responded. Jesus says this, describing himself as the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verses three to four. To him the gatekeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. 
And he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. That's the picture of our God, a shepherd. He cares for us. He leads us out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. The shepherd showed up. The risen king that is Jesus showed up to Mary and spoke her name. And in that moment, she heard that call. She recognized the voice of the good shepherd. It's all grace. You're not a Christian because you've done enough things to earn the favor of God. You're a Christian because you're like, I can't do it. I'm lost. I'm grieving. I'm sobbing. I'm hysterical. All right. I'm literally cut off from God. And the God of the universe saw fit to lead you out to deliver you. If you're here this morning as the skeptic, as the doubter, as like, I don't know, or maybe just you're like, hey, what I'm most doubtful of is not that the resurrection happened, but that the God of the universe could love me because you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know the, the shame. All right, you've tried to deal with that by pushing that down. I don't want to go there. But the God of the universe knows. And he's calling out to you this morning by name saying, will you trust me? That Jesus lived a sinless life, that Jesus died on the, the cross for you, the punishment that you and I deserved. And he rose three days later, making a mockery of Satan's sin and death, crushing the head of the serpent. That's what he did. And then he calls you by name. Will you trust him? That's all God's grace. But it, did you get this as well? Jesus also commissions. And for us Christians, this is our story. Like we're called and we're commissioned. And so Mary gets the unbelievable privilege of being an apostle or a herald to the disciples. It says, but go to my brothers and say to them. Now look at this language as well. If you wonder if the God of the universe can love somebody like you, if he can love somebody like me, think about his love that he has for the disciples. Where are they? They're not at the tomb, even though he told them he was gonna rise from the dead. They had deserted him in his moment of need. They couldn't even stay awake to pray with him. They had denied him. They had all fled. And Jesus says this, go to my brothers. Look at the language that's used there. It's not, hey, go to those guys, go to those morons, go to, right? He's like, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father. Do you see the ways those are interconnected? Because of it being true for Jesus, he's made it possible for it to be true for us. For the misfits, the people that doubted, the people that didn't believe, the people that just kept messing up time and time again, my father is your father and to my God and your God. So Mary gets to go and do this. She gets to herald this. She gets to remind the ones who had probably taught her over the last couple of years, she gets to remind them, hey guys, there's grace. You don't have to earn anything. God is not gonna punish you for you, you know, running away. What he's doing is he's inviting you back in to say, I've risen from the dead. I've conquered Satan's sin and death. And you can know him as, you can know God as your father and as your God. And it tells us Mary went and announced the disciples. What I find really fascinating here is the word announced is this angelo, this Greek word, which if you're looking at that, you're like, it kind of sounds like angel. Yeah, angel means a herald. Isn't it fascinating? From a demon-possessed lady to one like an angel bringing good news. That's not possible apart from the grace of God. And what God did in Mary's life is what he can do in your life. And if you're here as a Christian this morning, it's what he has done in your life. The particulars may not look the same, but you, like Mary, were dead in your sin and you've been made alive through the finished work of Jesus. It's a miracle. And now go announce and go herald. Lastly, Easter, it ushers in. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry about that. 
John chapter 20, verse 15. Will you look back with me at this verse? There's this really fascinating detail. It says this. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener. Here's what I want to close with. Easter is about this new creation bursting forth right in the midst of this one. And it's not an accident that this little line is in this text. John isn't just like trying to fill something up, carry the story along. She has this moment where she's like, well, that's the gardener. This is meant to take us back. This line right here is a loaded statement by John under the inspiration of the Spirit to say, hey, we've heard of a garden before, haven't we? It's how the story of the Bible began in a garden where everything had been created as God intended it to be. And there was beauty, there's perfection, this harmony. And there's a group of people, Adam and Eve, put there to steward it, to expand it, to take it further, to do the work that the ultimate gardener had done that is God himself. All right? To be about this work of creation, to bring your, your creativity and your artistry and all of that to this world and help push this kingdom further, to expand the garden out into the chaos and the wilderness. But we know this, that there was a moment that came when our original father, Adam and Eve, they decided to rebel against God. They thought, you know what, we've got, we've got to want to do it our own way. We want to be like God. We want to do things the way that we want to do them, when we want to do them. And so they partook of that fruit. And guess what? All the beauty and the harmony began to spiral out of control back toward chaos. And what John wants us to see and hear in this, supposing him to be the gardener, is meant to take us back to that original garden and realize all the ways that we have fallen short, not just Adam and Eve, but you and me and every person who has ever walked this planet except for Jesus. And now we have the risen Lord Jesus in another space, referred to as a gardener, the one who prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, who rises now and he find, we find him in this garden what is being communicated? It's that where the first Adam failed, there's now a new and better Adam that is here. This is what Paul would write in Romans 5, 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam's failure is my failure, it's your failure. And because of Jesus living a perfect, sinless life, He's able to go and be that once and for all sacrifice that we might experience this abundance of grace. The free gift of righteousness was given to you when you trusted him because of what Jesus accomplished on Good Friday. That The wrath of God that should have been poured out on you and me was instead poured out on him. So that you and I might be restored to how we were originally created to be. Do you notice the language of righteousness reign in life? You're called to rule and reign, not as the ultimate but under the rule, under the lordship of King Jesus. That's your calling. And it's not just someday. Listen to me. The story of the Bible is not how to get you to heaven. The story of the Bible isn't just, well, believe so you can go to heaven when you die. The story of the Bible is heaven coming down and enveloping this earth and its new creation, new heavens and new earth. And the work that you have to do, it starts now. It's not someday off there. It's not this sort of floating nebulous thing that's out there as this disembodied spirit. It's people, flesh and blood, renewed, restored, redeemed, and getting to carry on this good work. This is where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is what ushered in new creation. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's showing you what it's gonna be like for all of us. For as by a man came death, 
by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, that at his coming, those, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What Jesus has experienced, he didn't come back as a spirit, came back flesh and blood. That's gonna be your story if you're in Christ. And he's got good work for you to do and he invites us to start it now, to begin practicing now, not to earn anything, He's already earned it. So I'll close with this quote. I want you to reflect on this, that Easter invites us into this. It ushers in this new creation. You get to participate now. You have good work to do. When you labor, yes, there's sin and brokenness and it's hard, but the reality is this, the work that you're doing, you get to be in tune with the creator of the universe. He has things for you to do, right? And it's not just things that happen in the church. You can do all your work to the glory of God. N.T. Wright in his book, Simply Christian, sums it up well. He says, life isn't a matter of simply getting in touch with our inner depths. It is certainly not about keeping the commands of a distant deity. Rather, it is the new way of being human, the Jesus-shaped way of being human, the cross and resurrection way of life, the spirit-led pathway. It is the way which anticipates in the present the full, rich, glad human existence, which will one day be ours when God makes all things new. He continues and said, Christian ethics then is not a matter of discovering what's going on in the world and getting in tune with it. It isn't a matter of doing things to earn God's favor. It is not about trying to obey dusty rule books from long ago or far away. It is about practicing in the present the tunes we shall sing in God's new world. Easter has ushered in new creation and one day everything is gonna be set right and you and I have an opportunity to practice that in the present, to get in tune and sing in God's new world. And so that's what we're gonna do, we're gonna respond. I'm gonna give you a moment, we wanna respond to God in some time of prayer. We're gonna respond in a moment through, through songs that we get to sing and even though that quote talked about being in tune, I don't sing in tune, I know nothing of singing in tune, but I'm gonna sing and I'm gonna sing loudly and I'm gonna praise God for what he has done, that there's an empty tomb. If you need prayer, we've got members of our prayer team that'll be in the back corners by the signs, go seek them out. Ask them to pray for you. Even if you don't have the words, can you just say, can you pray for me? They would count it a great privilege and joy. And then we're gonna participate in communion in a moment. I'll explain this more, but I wanna just, I wanna close in prayer and I wanna give you an opportunity to spend some time. What is it that you need to repent of? Where have you made the story about you? Where have you failed to believe? I want you to remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then rejoice. Rejoice in your prayer. Rejoice when we come up in communion. Rejoice through singing songs together. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Take some time to respond. Father, thank you. Thank you for the incredible gift of your son, that Jesus, you were willing to empty yourself, that you took on flesh and blood, that you moved into the neighborhood that you lived the life that we were called to live but couldn't, and that you died the death that we deserve, that I deserve. We thank you, though, that three days later there was an empty tomb. We thank you that this morning that we get to celebrate that. We thank you that each and every day we get to celebrate the fact that we are now resurrection people, that we are part of this new creation. And so, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're present with us, and we ask that you would empower us and embolden us and encourage us to begin to practice in the present what we will one day be ultimately a part of in the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you that even as we gather as the church on a Sunday, we get a little bit of an appetizer, a little bit of a foretaste of what it's going to be like. So God, I ask now that you would hear the prayers of your people. I pray for any here that God that walked in this morning, not sure if they believed any of this. I pray that you would bring them 
from death to life, that they might take an opportunity to confess their sin to you and turn and say, I, I do believe, to call on the name of the Lord to receive your grace. And God, I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, help us to remember all that you have done for us, all that you're continuing to do, all that you will do. And we rejoice in that reality. And so, Father, I pray that you would hear our prayers now for your glory and for our great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.